Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We've been in a series on the book of Mark, and uh, this is our second foray into the book of Mark. The first uh, time we were in it was in the spring, and we handled about the first half of the book, and then uh, we jumped in here in the last month, and we've been going through the last half of the book, and um, we've kind of come to a, a turning point in Mark's book, Mark's uh, gospel where Jesus is now heading to Jerusalem because the Son of Man, as we saw last week, the Son of Man must suffer many things and die. And the disciples are a tad confused. Uh, today we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 9, verse 1. If you brought your Bible, awesome. I encourage you to bring your Bibles. Uh, mark them up. <laughs> Mark up the book of Mark. That's not a bad thing. And uh, if you have your own Bible, it's always good because then you can refer back to it later. You know, when you get that 3 a.m. call that they're always talking about on TV, um, you can grab your Bible instead of calling me and bothering me. So, But you can also call me too. But anyways, <clears throat> let's just dive in because this is a fun story. This is awesome stuff here. Chapter 9, verse 1. If you don't know where that is, find Matthew. And then keep going towards the back, Matthew, Mark, it's the second book, right, uh, in the New Testament. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking because it's in red, that's how I know. Truly, I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. Stop. Do you ever wonder why he only takes three? I always wonder that. I mean, we're, we're, we live in a democracy. We think everything should be fair, and we especially think God would be fair. I mean, why doesn't he... And by the way, these are the same three every single time. He has 12. You know, that's easily divisible by three accounting friends, correct? You could have four groups of three. You could put them on a rotation basis. Everybody could get a chance to hang out with Jesus on, with, with my system. They could all have a chance at seeing a miracle. These same three guys, they got to go see Jesus raise a girl from the dead. These same three guys get to do all sorts of things that the other nine don't. I thought God was fair. Do you think God's fair? That irritates me a little bit because I'm afraid I wouldn't be one of the three. How about you? I'm afraid I'd be one of the nine. And scholars all cuss and discuss why these three? How come these three get to go and the nine don't? What's the deal? Some of them think, well, it's because they were, have been following Jesus longer than the others. Some of them think it's because Jesus loves them more than the others. In fact, that's biblical because John says, John, the disciple Jesus loved. Do you know who wrote that, though? John. Like if I get to write a book of the Bible and I get to call it Steve, you know how good I'm going to come off in that book? 
Steve, the disciple Jesus loved, right? I mean, that's how you would write it too. I mean, come on. I mean, we can't really take John's word for that, can we? That's it's kind of weird. Why these three people who are way smarter than me have have written lots of books and and talked lots of talk on this issue. And here I'm going to give you the youth pastor answer. Here's really what's going on. I think a lot of times Jesus was going to go off by himself. He had plans. He had ideas. He had something he had to do. And as he was about to leave, he's like, guys, me and God, we got to go do this thing. I'll be back. And then he looked over and he saw Peter, James, and John and thought, I can't leave these guys alone at camp. I think that's what's going on. Because I was a youth pastor, just like Jesus. He's kind of a youth pastor in these passages. There's those guys you just can't leave alone at camp. They were probably like setting fire to something or shooting off M80s or, you know, they were already causing trouble. And Jesus is like, hey, Peter, James, John, you're with me. And they're like, oh, man. They were going to have fun. You know, the cat's away, mice will play. I think that's what's going on. I really do. I mean, you can't take that to the bank, but I'm, I, I could be wrong, but I could be right. Especially if we keep reading here. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. We know high mountains in Colorado, not so much out here, but on the front range, there's a lot of 14ers. They didn't climb a 14er. There's debate as to which mountain they climbed. Uh, A lot of scholars have come around and they think because the last story that we have seen happened in Caesarea Philippi, which is at the foot of Mount Hermon, that the mountain that they went up six days later was Mount Hermon. And I'm in that camp. I think that makes sense because Mount Hermon is about 8,500 feet high. It's the tallest mountain in Israel. And it says high mountain. The other option that scholars have thrown around for a long time is Mount Tabor. And Mount Tabor is only about 1,500 feet tall. I kind of like the high mountain choice. Plus the location that, that, that Mark has already given us with Caesarea Philippi, it just makes sense. Plus, when you know what happened at Mount Hermon, which I talked about a couple weeks ago, but Eusebius, one of the early church historians, said about Mount Hermon that it was the world's sanctuary. That's what he called it. Because there were so many temples, there was so much God and goddess worship on Mount Hermon that it happened for generations, millennia. That it just makes sense that that's the place where Jesus would pull off what he's about to pull off to me. Another thing, and this is a weird story, and I get that. It's the weirdest story in the Bible. It's Genesis 6. But one of the, one of the things that we learn in the second temple literature, the literature that was written before the Gospels, the literature that Mark would have read, the literature that Peter would have read, you know, like the popular stories of the day, the stuff they were reading. One of those books was the book of Enoch. And the place that it had the story of Genesis 6 happening was on Mount Hermon. And so you could argue that Jesus picks Mount Hermon on purpose. He's going to make a statement about who he is to the world. And the world's a tad bit confused about who God is, wouldn't you say? It was back then, and it still is today. 
And Jesus is about to pull off something really interesting. He's about to go to the top of Mount Hermon. Let's read and find out what he does. There he was transfigured before them. Do you, get, do you guys know what that means? I don't know what that means. I really don't know what that means. Let's keep reading. Maybe we'll get a, a picture of this. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than, in the, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Okay, now I know this is the Bible. I know this is God's holy word. But that is a horrible descriptive sentence there. Whiter than anyone can bleach it? I mean, come on. Have you read Matthew's account of this? Matthew's account of this, Matthew says it's like the sun shone out of Jesus. Like, that's pretty helpful. Never seen that before. That's amazing. But you're going to use a commercial for bleach, Mark? Or, or Luke, he writes about this too. And his description is it's like lightning shot out of Jesus. And Mark's going with. It, it, it was like somebody really, really bleached him. Serious? Like, just for fun. I wonder if the biblical writers all get together in heaven and chat about what they wrote sometimes, you know? And can you hear this with Matthew, Mark, and Luke? And they're like, hey, guys, do you remember the transfiguration story? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Matthew, what'd you do with that one? Okay, well, I was trying to think, what's the brightest light there is? Because it was so bright, I wanted to just capture that. And I thought, you know what? You're told in school, don't look at the sun. So I picked the sun because it's like the sun shone out of Jesus. And Luke and Mark are like, yeah, that's awesome. And, and then they turn to, Mark, uh, to Luke and they're like, Luke, how did you handle it? And Luke's like, well, you know, when you're like at, late at night and it's dark, but it's stormy. And then you get that just brilliant flash of lightning that just lights up the entire countryside. I picked lightning because that was like, like, oh man, that's awesome. Hey, Mark, what did you do that for that one? And Mark's like, yeah, I covered that one too. No, I mean, come on, Mark. What'd you say? He was like really bleached. Serious? I, I'm going to go with Matthew and Mark uh, and Luke on this one. I mean, I know it's the Bible. I get what he's trying to say, but that's just not a very good descriptive word compared to the sun or lightning. I like those better. I'm going to stick with those. I think Mark was just kind of, it was like, Maybe it was laundry day when he wrote this. Man, I just can't get these whites white enough. Kind of like that time Jesus was on the mountain. I mean, maybe that's what he was doing. But that's so mundane compared to the sun or lightning. I like those better. So we have lightning man, and he's standing there on this mountain. And it says, and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with him. Okay, that didn't seem to have the impact on you that I... <laughs> and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with him. Ooh. Okay, let me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fill you in on something that you may or may not know about yourself. The reason this is not a big deal to you 
is because you were not raised as good Jewish boys and girls. It's not your fault. I blame your parents. Some of you, your parents are here. The reason this doesn't seem like a big deal to you is because you're like Elijah and Moses, big deal. Peter, James, and John, the guys who aren't trustworthy back at camp, they're up here. They get to see Lightning Boy. And then next to him is Moses and Elijah, the two coolest action figures of the Jewish nation. Moses. He gave them the law. He went up on the Mount Sinai and he got the tablets. I mean, Moses is standing there. It's Moses. He's got a beard. He's got his staff. He's got the tablets. They're like, Moses. (gasps) And then there's Elijah, bearded guy. Name tag that says Elijah. (laughs) I don't know what else to do with that one. It's like, The prophet of prophets. This guy was taken up in a fiery chariot into heaven. He did not die. This guy called down fire from the heavens. This guy, against insurmountable odds, stayed faithful to Yahweh. Moses and Elijah. If you were a good Jewish person, you'd be excited. You'd be like, no way. I want to rent this at the heavenly red box someday. I I want to see this one. I want to see if Mark got it right with bleached clothing or if if Matthew got it better with lightning or or, or sun. I I want want to see what it... I want to see how they knew it was Elijah. Did he have a name tag or what gave that away? Just picture that. And and this, by the way, is not a miracle. This is an interruption of the ongoing miracle. This is an interruption in the ongoing miracle of the incarnation of Jesus just looking like one of us. And up on the mountain, it's like he kind of goes, I'm tired of just looking human. It's not a miracle. This is the son of God. This is God in the flesh. And now he's letting it be known. And Moses and Elijah are there. And they're talking to him. And and one of the things that they're doing is they're encouraging him, I think. I mean, we don't get this in this passage, but I think Matthew and Luke fill us in a little bit more. They are encouraging Christ for what lies ahead. Now, when you read your Bible, One of the good things to do is to read it like fiction, not because it's not true. But when you read fiction, you use your imagination. When we read our Bibles, we often don't. This is a great story to use your imagination. Picture yourself. You are Peter, James, or John. You are not trustworthy back at camp. So Jesus brought you up on the mountain. Lightning boy is there. Moses and Elijah are there. What do you do next? Well, we know what Peter did. This is why I think he's not trustworthy at camp. Peter saw, says this. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, which by the way, it's never how you address lightning man. It's never how you address God in the flesh. Like when you really recognize this is like God that I've been hanging out with for three years, you don't go, hey, good teacher. 
Rabbi. In fact, it's interesting because the other parallel accounts in Matthew and Luke, they have Peter saying, Lord or master. But Mark says rabbi. And I think what happens is Mark's being honest here. <laughs> Mark's, Mark isn't trying to make Peter look a little better. Mark's cool with Peter looking totally stupid here because that's one of the points of his whole passage that he's doing here. This way section is demonstrating just how blind the disciples are. And Peter goes, rabbi, good teacher. Dude, I'm lightning, man. I'm sun guy. What are you talking about, rabbi? Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. (laughs) You have to read it with your best, like, Cali accent. (laughs) Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Eli. And then you get a comment. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. In my household, we have a a, a saying, if you don't know what to say, don't say anything at all. Peter, though, you got to love that that somebody said, print it, that's good Bible. You've got to love that they say, show Peter as being a complete idiot. Do you know why that's good? Because it'll give Steve Weinkoop in 2016 hope. It'll give him hope that if a bonehead like Peter can follow Jesus, then he can follow Jesus. It gives us hope. We're like, dude, lightning man is here. Moses and Elijah are here. You probably shouldn't be the one talking. Right? And if you do talk, don't say, Yo, teacher Jesus, it's really good for us to be here. You guys want tents? We can make tents. What? What is wrong with Peter? Do you get the iron? Do you get the the comedic genius of Mark here? This is a dumb, dumb, dumb. Have you ever publicly said something stupid? And like the very moment you said it, you just were like, ah, bummer. They heard it. It Happens to me every Sunday. I go back and listen to recordings of my sermons and I'm like, oh my gosh, Holy Spirit, please intervene. Right? Or maybe if I just edit it out and everybody listens to the podcast, they'll never remember I actually said it. It's one of the advantages of getting to edit your own sermons and then post them online, which I've only done that like once. But anyway. It'll be twice now. Um, have you ever said something stupid in public? And then you try to cover it up, but you just dig a deeper hole? Hello? You're in the Peter Club. It's totally what he did. Oh, it's good for us to be here. I mean, I can just picture James and John like they're distancing themselves. You know, it's like, you're on your own, Pete. Like... Even a fool's considered wise if he keeps his mouth shut. Didn't you read the Proverbs? I mean, golly, you're a good Jewish boy. Why are you talking? Then Peter's like, okay, they just backed away, and I just said something stupid. And my guess is Mo and Eli didn't even know other people were up there until Peter's like, hey. Like a, a voice from the bushes. It's really good for us to be here. 
And Mo and Eli are like, what? You brought those yahoos again, Jesus? What? Yeah, they were shooting off M-80s. You can't leave them. I don't think Jesus is too upset about it. I don't throw, think it throws him off his game, but, but somebody's about to show up. Dad's about to show up. Look what dad has to say. When I say dad, I mean God the Father. Then a cloud appeared. If you're a good Jewish boy and clouds appear, you start going, oh, this reminds me of that story about Moses on Mount Sinai where a cloud was enveloping the mountain for 40 days as he met with Yahweh. Or you think about the Shekinah glory that dwelt in the temple in a cloud over the mercy seat. Or you think of the cloud that led the people by day, a pillar of cloud that led the people out of Egypt and went before them for 40 years every day. When you see clouds and it envelops you as a Jewish Hebrew person, your knees knock. And then a cloud appeared and covered them. Twenty times in the Old Testament, clouds appear and cover people. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. A word of advice. If you ever find yourself on a mountaintop with lightning boy Jesus and Mo and Eli, shut up. Don't talk. It's not about you. Like if you ever find yourself in a situation where you are experiencing God's presence, he is working and moving and doing amazing things in you, around you, through you. Just shut up. It's not about you. Suddenly... When they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. The bleach is gone, lightning and sun have been tucked back in. And I'm sure Jesus is like, seriously, Pete? We could have done that all day. But no, I couldn't leave you alone at camp. (laughs) Then Mark, he speeds it up a little bit. He says, And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wish, just as it is written about him. And you and I are like, okay, that's a little cryptic. What? First off, they're on their way down. Jesus is like leading the processional and the dudes are like, man, what just happened? That was crazy. Pete, why don't you stay in the back? Because we think you are out. And they're walking down and Jesus kind of turns over the shoulder and goes, hey guys, you may not want to tell anybody about this. Number one, they're probably not going to believe you. And no, Wait until I pull off Easter. And then talk about it. And then they're like, what does rising from the dead mean? Because they're people like us. 
And a lot of times we think ancient people are just kind of more prone to superstition or a supernatural worldview than you and I. But it's not like people just sprung up back from the dead. In fact, we are able to do far more for people who are dead than they were. Do you know what I mean? Have you been to the rack and worked out? And you're really glad that that electronic device is there in case your heart stops. I'm glad it's there because there's a couple times I've worked out to the point that I thought my heart should be stopping soon. I hope somebody's here that can use that thing. Back in the ancient world, if your heart stopped, they pronounced you dead. They didn't have zombies back then. The only zombies they had were the ones Jesus rose back from the dead. Nowadays, we can perform CPR. We can, we can get the heart started. The heart muscle is a forgiving muscle. We can get it restarted. The trouble is if it's been stopped too long and there's not enough blood going to the brain, oxygen to the brain, then you have brain deadness. But we can get the heart going. We can do all sorts of stuff for people who are near death. We can do all sorts of stuff for people whose hearts have stopped. Ancient world, they, they, they didn't have any of that. And we think sometimes that when it talks about rising from the dead, all ancient people just thought, yeah, because that happens like every other week here. It's like, no. If you're dead, you're dead. You're gone. You see, they went around discussing, hey, what do you think it means? Rise from the dead. (laughs) That's weird. I've never seen that happen. Well, we had that one little girl, but she wasn't in the grave. What does that mean? And through this whole thing, Mark is trying to help you and I see just how blind the disciples are. Oh, man, they don't get it. In fact, it's so bad that Jesus is going to pull off Easter and he's still, after he appears to them in bodily form, he's in the upper room with them, he still, the scriptures say, has to open their minds so that they can understand. Any of you do life with people who don't know Christ? Any of you do life with people who who don't follow Jesus Christ? Any of you ever frustrated? Any of you ever heartbroken? Any of you ever just like, oh my gosh, that was the best description I've ever given of these things. How come they didn't get it? People who stood in the transfigured presence of Christ didn't get it. They didn't get it. And and this wasn't the only time they stood in the transfigured presence of Christ. This was the first time. And then later in the resurrected Jesus body thingy, which is a transformed, transfigured body, they still didn't get it. So what are a couple of things we can learn from this? 
Be careful when you think you've got it figured out. Peter Enns, he's an Old Testament professor. He wrote a book called The Sin of Certainty. And some of you are like, what? That sounds like it's a bad thing. He wrote a book called The Sin of Certainty. And if you've spent any time at all living in modern day America, sure feels like there are a lot of people out there who are certain about many things. There are many people who are certain that they weren't really born a boy. There are many people who are certain that since birth they were this way. There are many people who are certain that if this person's elected, it'll be the end of the world. There are many people who are certain that Obama spelled backwards is Antichrist. There are many people certain that they have found a code in the Hebrew Bible that spells out something. There are many people certain who populate Christian Middle Earth and run rampant with crazy. There are only a handful of things I am certain of. And even on my best days, some of those things I struggle to hold on to. Why is that? Why is that? For one, I've never been on a mountaintop with Jesus where he became lightning man. I've never experienced that. I have never seen Jesus. I've seen paintings of him. I have no idea if he looked like that. I have experienced emotions and feelings that make me think God and Jesus are real. I've experienced that. But I've also experienced feelings and emotions that sometimes tell me, you need to injure that person because they're being jerked to you. I've experienced emotions and feelings most Monday mornings that tell me, quit your job. And then I go online and I'm like, did you know every pastor in America feels that way on Monday mornings? I'm like, huh, my feelings and emotions can't always be trusted. I've counseled people who have been married 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and they're telling me, I don't feel like I'm in love with this person anymore. And I'm like, hey, I am right there with you. Marnie and I aren't feeling the love anymore. And I'm learning that my feelings and my emotions and my experiences are not trustworthy. And sadly, lots of people follow their feelings and their emotions and get divorces and quit jobs on a whim and go do things that they'd rather be doing. There are times, even on my best days, I struggle with doubts about the things I'm pretty certain about. Part of it is is because I've never had this experience. And then I read about this experience, and I'm like, the dudes that were there still didn't get it. And I think, oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. Is that our lot as humans? Is that our lot? 
Are we just prone to blindness and doubt and muddling through? And then you have Jesus. And, and one of the things that's frustrating with Jesus, so I saw this painting this past week, and it was this guy in a business suit, and he's sitting there, and he's having his like morning quiet time, right? And the idea is that Jesus, in his ancient you know, first century, because Jesus will never change his clothing. He'll always be ancient first century clothes when he sits and chats with you. But anyways, my brain just does weird things. Sorry about that. This man is sitting there. He's all in his three-piece suit, and he's having his quiet time. He's talking with Jesus, and Jesus is in his first-century outfit, and Jesus is giving him some insight, and the man's sitting there, and he's going, hmm. And I'm like, you know what? My quiet times don't feel like that because the Jesus I read about asks questions. He doesn't give answers. And then when he gives answers, like these answers, because it's in red, he's talking, and he says this. Yeah, what comes out of you, or sorry, that's another passage, and we aren't going to do that. To be sure, Elijah does come first. Oh, so we got an answer. And restores all things. Huh? Why then, oh dear, question. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? And then you're like, uh, let me search my Old Testament and find where it says, written, that the Son of Man must suffer things. Because when I go back and I look for those phrases all together, I don't find them. But I tell you, Elijah has come. I know. He was on the mountain with us, right, Jesus? And they have done to him everything they wished. Uh, All I know is Peter opened his mouth. Who's the they did everything that they were going to do to him? Just as it is written about him. Huh? And that's the end of the conversation. Jesus doesn't comment on it. My guess is the three that can't be trusted at camp just shut up and kept walking. And were like, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't have a clue. I don't know what he's talking about. Maybe after he pulls off Easter, but what's Easter? I have no clue. What's this risen from the dead stuff? I hope somebody in 2016 can explain it to us because I don't really know. Sometimes, don't you get that experience when you read your Bible, when you try to hang out with Jesus, when you just had this mountaintop experiment, experiment, experience, and you're on your way down, and now you're like, oh dear, I don't know what to do with what just happened. I don't even know what just happened. why i think peter ends is on to something about the sin of certainty we can be so certain about so many things and we might be certainly wrong now i'm not talking about the core issues of orthodox christianity here i hope and pray you are certain on those things that jesus christ did pull off easter that he did suffer and die and he rose again from the dead i pray that you are certain of that and i preach that but there's a lot of other stuff gang that people are very certain about that they post on facebook or they post on twitter or they get in other people's faces on and more and more i'm going man we're just obnoxious The church is becoming a stench to people. But we're standing up for truth. 
I, I get that. I understand that. If you feel called and you want to stand up for truth, go forth. Do that. Bless your little mission field of Facebook. Go for it. Did you know that people can turn you off and quit following you? Another thing I see here is God's not too worried about fairness. God doesn't have any prerogative to treat us all the same or to treat us all similarly or to treat us fairly. I don't know what you've been teaching your kids in your home, but we regularly try to tell our kids, life's not fair, suck it up, buttercup. And did you know there's story after story after story after story after story after story after story in the Bible of God not being fair? I don't know why. If I was one of the 12 disciples, I would have been the guy left at camp. Probably because I'm trustworthy. I'm a compliant firstborn. I would have done what Jesus tells me. I don't know why some people get to do things that they get to do and I don't get to do them. I don't know why some people make more money than I make. I don't know why some people make more, drive nicer cars than I get them drive. I don't know why some people get better breaks in their careers than you do. I don't know why some kids turn out better than your kids did. I don't know why some kids are more talented than your kid was. I don't know why some classes have more talent surrounding them for football than the kid that's on that team now has. I don't know why. Things are unfair. I just know they are. And I know it doesn't seem to bug God at all. And I know that if we continue to try to make this Christian life about us. And about what we know. And about what we're certain about. And what we're comfortable with. And what we're safe with. And what we're going to be okay with then you have a rabbi, but you do not have a Lord. When Jesus is transfigured before you, when he pulls off Easter, he is no longer just a nice teacher who you grab a hold of and you go, please bless me, help me, give me, take care of me. I mean, you can do that. That can be where your Christian life exists. But you better not cross any borders. You better not go hang out with Mike in China. You better not go to North Korea. You better not go to Iraq or Iran or Afghanistan or Pakistan. You better not go to India where they have started to persecute Christians because the prime minister there is a hardcore Hindu. And they have burned down churches. They've beaten pastors and their wives and their children. You better not go there. You better stay at home. And just ask Jesus to bless you and keep you and help you and make sure the right person is president. But are you following Christ? Are you following Christ? The Son of God must suffer many things and be killed. And if you want to follow him, he said last week, take up your cross. Follow me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father.
forgive us for our blindness. It is so hard to see Christ for who he is. That we let books and radio and TV tell us so much who he is. And influence us and and tell us, boy, if this doesn't happen, the sky's falling and we better all run away. Father, thank you that the church was birthed in a culture that hated you. Thank you that the church was added to daily in an empire that killed you. And help us remember that your kingdom is not of this world. If we will follow you, we are no longer subjects of this world, but we are subjects of the kingdom yet to come. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help all of us to have the blindness lifted from our eyes and we would know whether we follow Jesus or not. And if there's waffling in us, like I see sometimes in me, Holy Spirit, you would come alongside us. You would steal us to follow you. Not because you answer our questions, not because you're fair, not because you're nice, not because you give us stuff, but because you called us. Holy Spirit, make it so. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. No lightning man, Jesus. Know him and know it's not about you. Amen.